The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to begin with a story from my mission experience in Japan. We lived near a family of people who owned the largest pharmaceutical company in all of Japan, a multi-billion dollar corporation, uh, the Otsuka family, and we were teaching their children English. It's kind of funny because they came back, they had lived in America for a number of years and came back to Japan, and we taught them for two years, and when we got done, they spoke, spoke worse English than when we started. But we don't think that's our fault. They just weren't surrounded by English-speaking people anymore. So we were just trying to stave off the inevitable decline. But uh, out of gratitude, they invited us, the family invited us to a dinner at one of their holdings, one of their pieces of land. And it was an old Japanese home, an ancient home. And one of the interesting things about Japanese culture is the blending of the ancient with the incredibly modern. And that's the way Japan is. On the surface, it looks modern. And then there's other aspects that are incredibly ancient. And the two... Uh, go together in an amazing way and uh, we were being given a tour by this man and he stopped at a stairwell and pointed to a mosaic up on the wall and he said that there were that those ceramic tiles had been specially invented by a process that they were the only ones that had and that the pigmentation the coloring in the ceramic tiles was of such an advanced nature that it would last the color would last between eight and ten thousand years without fading and I thought to myself as a scientist how in the world did they prove that into what oven, into what process did they do? Did they come up with eight to 10,000 years? But they did. They said that this is the closest thing to eternal that you're going to find on earth. And on that, I had to differ. Right here, this is eternal. And that's what Jesus said. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I don't know how long those ceramic tiles are going to last. I don't know how long they'll hold their color. Probably I won't be around to see it. I don't really have any idea. But Jesus clearly testifies in the verses we're going to look at today that in the scripture we have something that will last until the end of time. And therefore it's essential for us to give our full attention to it in order to understand because the Bible has been attacked throughout history, hasn't it? And it makes sense because it is the foundation of everything we know about God and Jesus Christ. So Satan marshals attacks and tries to overthrow the scripture. Theologian Bernard Ram said this, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. Isn't that great? He added, no other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What other book on philosophy or religion or psychology from classical or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as has the Bible? With such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition upon every single chapter, line, and word. And yet, the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, studied by millions. hundred years ago, German liberal theologians were attacking the Bible. All they did was destroy the faith of some, but the scripture remains. The scripture remains, and it will, says Jesus, until the end of time. This shouldn't surprise us, for Isaiah wrote, All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our Lord 
stands forever. And Jesus adds his testimony here. For he says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Very strong statement that Jesus makes about Scripture. Let's see if we can get our context. Jesus began in the Sermon on the Mount by giving a series of character traits which would characterize the heart of every true Christian. We've been studying them carefully. They're called the Beatitudes. And it begins with a, an incredible statement in which he says, Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he runs through a series of, of character traits, mourning over sin, meekness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, and being persecuted as a peacemaker. As we advance with the gospel, we're going to be persecuted. All of these characteristics fitting together to the perfect heart of a Christian. Not one or the other, but all of them fitting together. This is the heart of the Christian. And last week we saw that anyone who lives this way, anyone whose heart is characterized by these, these traits, will be a world changer. He or she will be salt and light in the world. A tremendous impact. But now Jesus is getting to a significant topic. And that is, how should the Christian look at the Scripture? Realize at the time that there was no New Testament. It was being lived out even in their midst as Jesus continued in his ministry, but it didn't exist yet. But the Old Testament existed. And Jesus was dealing there with the issue of the law and the prophets and how a Christian should relate to the law and prophets. And even more significantly, how he himself as Messiah related to the Old Testament. Absolutely essential. Because we need to understand the purpose of God's law for us as Christians. What is it meant to do? And if we don't understand it rightly, we'll be in deep trouble. Jesus is going to lay down, I think, two essential principles here. Two absolutely essential things. First of all, he's going to say, absolutely everything I teach, everything I live, everything I work for, is in perfect conformity to the law and the prophets. Everything I do, everything I say, is in total conformity to the law and the prophets. Principle number two. Everything I teach, everything I live, everything I work for is in total disharmony with the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So he sets himself up as the righteous interpreter of the law and the Pharisees and teachers of the law as false teachers. And if you're going to follow them, you'll follow them to destruction, Jesus said, because unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you will not go to heaven. So Jesus is establishing himself as an authoritative, as the authoritative teacher of the law. And as we're going to see next week, beginning next week, he's going to go through elements of the law and say, you have heard that it was said by the people of old, such and such, but I say to you, such and such. And as a result, the Pharisees, who had worked their way into a position of monopoly on scripture instruction, will cry foul. And they're going to say that Jesus is overthrowing everything. He's saying, no, I'm not. I'm just weeding out every weed that my heavenly father has not planted. I'm pulling it up by the roots. We're getting back to what the scripture purely is what it truly is and I am the authoritative teacher to tell you what that is it's amazing the authority that Jesus carries 
So much so that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his authority because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. So those two principles. Jesus says, I'm in total conformity with the law and the prophets, and the Pharisees are in total disconformity. I'm in total disharmony with them. Let's see if we can understand what Jesus is saying. In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what are the law and the prophets? This is just a way of speaking, a Hebrew way of speaking of the written word of God. It's a way of summing up what was in the Old Testament in the Scripture. The law, namely the Ten Commandments, came down from Mount Sinai from God. The beginning of the writing of Scripture came with the finger of God when he inscribed in tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. He wrote them with his own finger, it says. That was the beginning of the written word of God. Moses, after that, copied down what God told him to say. That scroll was the beginning of the writings of the prophets, Moses being the first writing prophet. And so he wrote down the scripture, and that was the start of it. Now, Moses would add hundreds of other commandments after that. It wouldn't just be the Ten Commandments. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Jews of Jesus' day, uh, divided laws into two categories, positive and negative. 248 positive commands, to, uh, 365 negative commands. Comprehensive law given by God, covering every area of life. This was the law. The prophets took the law and drove it home to the hearts of sinful Israel so that they would understand how they were breaking their covenant and why it was that they would ultimately be judged by God and be expelled from the promised land. That's exactly what the prophets did. They took the law and applied it to the hearts of the people. The law and the prophets sums up all the writings, all that activity of the thousands of years before Jesus came. Now, Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish. What does the word abolish mean? The word means to utterly overthrow or to raise to the ground, if you can imagine, a building that's being removed for urban renewal. The idea is that, that, that the building is destroyed and laid to rubble, and then the rubble itself is cleared away. There's nothing left. That's the strong word that Jesus uses. And he says, don't think that I've come to do that. That actually is the absolute opposite of what I came to do. I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill. But Jesus seems to, in the rest of this chapter, be abolishing something. He seems to be wiping something away. And what he's wiping away is that human system of interpretation that the scribes and Pharisees had set up in the place of the law. I'm going to talk about this more next week, but realize what, what had happened. The Jews had been kicked out of the promised land, and when they came back, most of them did not speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Greek, they spoke Aramaic, perhaps. And so they could not read the scriptures for themselves. They didn't own the scriptures. They were too expensive. Individual copies would have been prohibitive. And so these teachers of the law got up and said, well, they'd read it in Hebrew, and then they'd translate it a little bit and give some explanation. So human teaching became the law. And Jesus began to strip this away and say, no, well, let's get back to what it really says and what it really means. So Jesus is going to set himself up against the Pharisees as the authoritative teacher of the word. But more about this idea of abolishment, and this gets into the heart of the issue here. The Old Testament itself seemed to indicate that it would be obsolete at some point. For it says in the book of Jeremiah 31:31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Commenting on this, the writer in Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 13, says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the old one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, it seems that that's in contradiction to what Jesus is saying, but you have to understand them differently. Portion of the law was fulfilled and was no longer needed when Jesus came. Other parts continue. But Jesus is saying something different about the written word than that. He's saying, don't suppose that I came to do away with it as though it had no impact any longer. I did not come to do that, but to fulfill. Now,
They thought of the law as being too difficult, too hard. And so what they needed to do is they needed to bring it down to something that they could do. However difficult, at least they would be able to live it out. And that's what the Pharisees did. They took difficult laws and they made it attainable if you just worked at it. If you, if you just worked hard enough, you could be righteous by the law. And Jesus is going to strip this away. Instead, we have an image here of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, as of vessels, the image I've used in the past, things that were set out in the words of the prophets to be fulfilled when Jesus came, filled up with the life of Christ. Some scholars have divided the law into three categories. The moral law, the judicial or the societal law, and then the ceremonial law. The moral law being things like you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall have no other gods before me. These Jesus fulfilled by his perfect life. The judicial law, that is the laws that made the Jews a different kind of people, and they were different, they wore different kinds of clothes, they weren't allowed to do something, certain things with their clothes. They ate foods and didn't eat other foods because of the law. Jesus fulfilled that by living under those and by ultimately overturning them when they were fulfilled. Their purpose was distinct, as I'll discuss in a minute. And then finally, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial law, Jesus fulfilled by his sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish any of these laws, rather to fulfill them. Now, the law had two basic functions, and this is very important. It's absolutely essential that you know why the law was given. If you go wrong on this, then you'll be led into one of the errors of Jesus' day, self-righteousness or lawlessness, for example. The law was given for two functions, two purposes. Number one, to give us a demonstration of righteousness, that we would see what righteousness is. Not only that we would understand God's righteousness, but that we would understand our own lack of righteousness. The law was given to expose our sin in this matter, for example. The law was given as a description or a demonstration of righteousness. The law was also given to identify the Messiah. The law came to set up a context, a Jewish context for Jesus. And when he came, he fulfilled predictions, he fulfilled laws, he fulfilled the written words so that we would know that Jesus was the one who had come. Do you know that some population uh, estimates or experts estimate that there have been about 10 or 11 billion people that have ever lived? In all history, the majority, the overwhelming majority, are alive right here today. And so we have the opportunity through the missionary enterprise to reach the overwhelming majority of those that have ever lived today, now. Well, in 10 or 11 billion people, how are you going to find, how are you going to identify the Messiah? How are you going to know who he is? By the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which God set out that only one man in all history could have fulfilled, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what was the law not given to do? The law was given as a demonstration of righteousness and it was given to identify Messiah, but what was it not given to do? It was not given to make us righteous. The law makes nothing perfect, says the writer to Hebrews. Nothing is changed by the law. You are what you are. All the law does is show you what you really are because you cannot live up to its demands. And anyone who seeks to become righteous by fulfilling the law is falling into the Pharisaic legalism which Jesus seeks to overturn. Well, now let me ask, how did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? What did he do? First of all, may understand the statements that Jesus makes that he did come to fulfill. In John 5, 31, he talks to the Pharisees and to the scribes, and this is what he says. He says, you diligently study the scriptures. And by the way, that was an understatement. They poured over the scriptures every day. They wrote letter by letter, every single letter, one after the other. They studied the scriptures with incredible detail. That was their job. That's what they did every day. And he said, you pour over the scriptures, you diligently study the scriptures, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that what? Testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
The scriptures, the Old Testament testifies about me, said Jesus. Seven verses later, he said it again. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote about Jesus, so said Jesus. Prophecies controlled all of Jesus' life. We've already seen that. Do you remember how the Gospel of Matthew begins? It begins with a genealogy, fulfilled prophecy. Jesus would be descended from Abraham. He would be descended from Isaac. He would be descended from Jacob. He would be descended from Judah, descended from Jesse, descended from David, and on down. Every one of those steps prophesied before Jesus was ever born or entered the world. Prophecy controlled how he was born and where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy controlled every aspect of Jesus' ministry in his life. It controlled his gentle manner. It said in the book of Isaiah, bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus would be gentle in his ministry. It also says it controls the way that Jesus taught. I will utter my, I'll open my mouth and utter par parables and dark sayings of old in Psalm 69. Jesus would teach in parables and so he did. It, it controlled the way that he taught and the way he carried himself, for example, in controversies and religious arguments with the leaders of his day. How did he begin the one on divorce? In Matthew 19, he said, haven't you read in the scripture that at the beginning he made them male and female? He used scripture for everything. He used scripture for teaching. I'm convinced he had the whole thing memorized. I really think he did. Because in the midst of a controversy, this is incredible, in the midst of a controversy with the Jews, when they were ready to stone him, do you know what scripture he pulled for when he said, I said you are gods? That's Psalm 82. Now, you may have heard of Psalm 23. Maybe some of you, Psalm 22 or Psalm 16, certainly Psalm 51. But Psalm 82... Right in the middle, a, a throwaway line. Are there any throwaway lines? Absolutely not. Every word inspired. He knew it all. Psalm 82, I think it's verse 10. I said you were God. And right around then, in John 10:35, he says, the scripture cannot be broken. It's too strong. You can't break the scripture. This is Jesus' clear statement. Jesus also said to the devil, and in the midst of temptation, what does he reach for? But scripture, of course he did. He was saturated in the scriptures. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In the midst of temptation, he reverts to Scripture. So much so that Jesus said, even in reference to his own statements, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That extends, therefore, to the New Testament. All Scripture will last until the end of time. And Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, in that time, more Scriptures were fulfilled than any other aspect of his life. His last week of existence on earth was thick with fulfilled prophecy. I, I was thinking about this. I looked at it. And do you know that when Jesus was arrested, his right-hand man, Peter, pulled out his sword and wanted to fight for him. Do you remember that? And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And do you not think that I cannot call on my Father and at once he will put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, if I were going to avoid arrest, it wouldn't be by that little dagger of yours. So put it away. If I were going to try to avoid arrest, I'd call on 12 legions of angels and they would handle this small detachment that's come to arrest me. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Now that is a beautiful summation of Jesus' attitude. Scripture says it, it must be fulfilled and I am bound by it. Scripture cannot be broken. When Jesus hung from the cross, Scripture records seven distinct sayings of Jesus. Seven different times he opened his mouth and made a statement. The first of these was this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama salakhtani, he said. Do you know what that is? It's a direct quote of Psalm 22.1. 
Franco Zeffirelli did a movie called Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a six-hour production of the life of Christ. It's one of my favorites. I love it. And I enjoy watching it. It's not perfect, as no depiction of the life of Christ could be. But Zeffirelli had Jesus' enemies gathered around the foot of the cross, looking up. And when Jesus cried out, Aloy, Aloy, they said, oh, he's calling for Elijah. But one of them stroked his beard and said, no, he's not. No. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting scripture. Even now, even here, hanging on the cross with his lifeblood flowing out of him, he's quoting the Bible. And he shook his head in amazement. He hated Jesus, but he could not understand his, his total dedication to the written word so that he's up there dying and he's quoting scripture. And Jesus was identifying a prophetical passage of scripture which predicted he would die by piercing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then toward the end in John 19, 28, John writes, Jesus, later knowing that all things were completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. Jesus' motive, according to John, was to fulfill one last prophecy before he died, that he would drink vinegar. Now, who do you think brought that vinegar and put it at the foot of the cross that day? Some man, some woman didn't know what they were doing, but they were under the control of prophecy. That bowl was there, they put it on a sponge, they lifted it to his mouth and he drank, and then all things were finished. And what was the last thing that Jesus said in the Synoptic Gospels? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Look that one up, Psalm 31.5, direct quote. Three of Jesus' seven statements on the cross had to do with the written word of God. If that's not saturation with the Bible, I don't know what is. But then Jesus' death itself fulfilled reams of prophecy. The, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross fulfilled all the sacrificial system. It came because you and I were under the law. We were under it. And the law has demands. One commandment after another. 365 negative commands. 248 positive commands. Have you fulfilled them all every day of your life? And if not, what will you do for, your, for the judgment? What will you do for the punishment that is due you? It says in the book of James that if anyone falls at one command, he's guilty of the whole of it. Just as a beautiful pane of glass. If there's only one BB hole in it, you replace the glass. I remember thinking about the aquarium in, in New England, thinking about that. There's this beautiful aquarium there. And I thought about the law that way. Can you imagine seeing all those sharks and different things swimming around there and seeing a little bullet hole down there at the bottom and saying, oh, that's all right, it's just one hole, no problem. That's what the law is like. If you fail at just one point of it, you're guilty of all of it. And we failed at more than just one point. And if you don't think so, just stay with us over the next few weeks after Easter and we'll continue on looking at Matthew 5 and you'll see what God's standards are with the law. That's not why the law was given. But Jesus took the law's demands. He took our punishment on himself so that on judgment day we would not have to stand under the commands of the law, but rather we would be free from it. But Jesus also fulfills the law in us. Through his resurrection and through his death and his resurrection and through the advance of the gospel, he fulfills all the prophecies, but then he fulfills the law in us. Romans 8.4. Romans 8.4 says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit lives inside us so that we can now walk in the light of the law and obey it. Jesus fulfills the Scripture all the way through. In verse 18, Jesus makes a comprehensive statement about the permanence of Scripture. Jesus says, Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear until everything is accomplished. It is comprehensive, first of all, in time. Look what he says, until heaven and earth disappear. There'll be no time at which the law and the prophets disappear. It will stay with us. And so it has. 2,000 years later, it's still here. Fulfillment right in our midst. 
comprehensive in time. Secondly, it's comprehensive in scope. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. King James has jot and tittle. That little word jot, J-O-T, that's a transliteration of the Hebrew letter yod, Y-O-D-H. It looks like a tiny little apostrophe. If you want to know what every Hebrew letter looks like, open up your Bibles, don't do it now, but when you get home to Psalm 119, and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet, alphabet, 22 letters. And you can look at the yod, and it's so small you can't even see it. It's a little, tiny little yod. Jesus says, not one yod will disappear. They'll all be there until the end of time, because they're exactly the way I want them. Comprehensive in scope. Every letter of Scripture will stay. Secondly, uh, thirdly, comprehensive in power. Not one letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear. Will by any means. No king can make it disappear. No, no spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan cannot make it disappear. There's no power that anyone can marshal that will overthrow the law of God. It will last. There is no power in heaven and on earth or under the earth that can overthrow the scripture. Finally, comprehensive in purpose. Until everything is, in, is accomplished. Everything will be done just as it is written and nothing can stop it. Very strong statement on the scripture. Comprehensive all the way through. But here we come into some difficulties. Didn't Jesus overthrow some laws? Didn't he, for example, overthrow the dietary regulations? How many of you recently have been offered some ham or some pork or bacon and said, no, no, I can't. I'd be breaking the laws of God and I wouldn't want to do that. Raise your hand. I, sh I could even say have you stand up because I don't think there's anyone in our midst like that. How many of you said, no, I just can't wear those garments because there's a mixture there of linen and wool, I think. I, it's a blend and I can't wear that. That's a direct uh, contradiction of Leviticus 16, verse 17. Have you run into that difficulty? Why not? Because Jesus has fulfilled that and it seems to have been overthrown. It seems to have been removed. It says very clearly in Mark 7, 19, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So go ahead and enjoy your pork, enjoy your bacon. There may be other reasons not to eat it. There may be others. I know we have physicians in our midst. You can ask them. But becoming ceremonially unclean is not one of them. Jesus declared all foods clean. And as I quoted earlier, Hebrews 8.13 says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the old one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So in what sense does Jesus say they will by no means disappear? Well, realize Jesus said, until everything is fulfilled. Each of those laws had its purpose. And when that purpose had been fulfilled, then its time had passed. But yet, it's still here. We can still read about it. Even though we're not under that requirement anymore, we can still read about it. And it still has the fulfillment because it points forward to Christ. It points to Christ. And in that way, it stands. The scripture will last forever until everything is fulfilled. Now, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus brings us into two dangers. Two dangers with the law. You could call it the Scylla and Charybdis. Now, perhaps you're not familiar with Scylla and Charybdis. They were two rocks on opposite sides of a narrow strait in the book, uh, The Odyssey, by Homer. Uh, Odysseus was traveling, and he came to these two rocks, and they had these hideous monsters on them, one on the left and one on the right. One of them snatched sailors off the decks of your ship. The other one sucked water up so that your ship got sucked up into its, into its stomach. It's a mythological story. But modern scholars believe that this was the narrow straits of Messina between the island of Sicily and the toe of the boot of Italy. And if you sail between there, they call the rock Scylla and Charybdis. What it means is you don't want to go too far one direction. You don't want to go too far the other direction. You want to go right in the middle. If you go too far one way or the other, your ship will be destroyed. Now, what are the two uh, ways of being destroyed? In verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That is the error of lawlessness. And then in verse 20, he mentions the righteousness of the Pharisees, and, he, and that is the error of 
self-righteousness. These are two different approaches to the law. Lawlessness comes to the law and says, I don't really care what it says. It really doesn't matter to me. I'm not under the law. It doesn't make a difference what God's standards are. Or I don't really care what God thinks. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. 1 John 3, 4 says that everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you are under the law. And therefore, the law will point an accusing finger at you point by point, condemning you to eternity apart from God in hell. That's what the law, that's how important the law is. It stands over you if, you have, if it has not been forgiven through Jesus Christ. The law is absolutely essential. But this day and age in America, we have this view of grace, cheap grace it's called. In other words, Jesus died for us, the blood cleanses us, we don't need to worry about the law anymore. We're not under law. The problem with all this is self-delusion. If you're living contradictory to the law, you're not a Christian. Because what does God do? He gives you the Holy Spirit and brings you back to the law so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the, to the Spirit. But the opposite error is the danger of self-righteousness. The Pharisees looked at the law and said, I can do that. I can do that. You remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And he says, obey the commands. Which ones, the man said. Jesus listed some. And he said, I've obeyed all those from my birth. Self-righteous. Pharisees were exactly like that. The religion of the Pharisees was a self-righteous religion in which they looked at the laws and said, I can do that. All you have to do is this, do that, do the other, and you'll be fine. It was an external religion, a religion of show. Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. That was self-righteousness. And what is the danger there? Self-delusion. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they're going to be surprised because they did not deal with the law properly. Well, what is the law designed to do? It's designed to make you submit. It's designed to make you a spiritual beggar. That's what it's designed to do. When you go through Matthew 5, it brings you back to Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It keeps bringing you back again and again to God, saying, Oh, God, how can I defeat this anger in my life? How can I defeat the lust? Why is it I make promises and I don't keep them, God? What is the matter with me? Oh, wretched heart. It brings you back again and again. That's the purpose of the law. Not that we look at it and say, I can do that. Or we look at it and say, it doesn't matter. Proper submission to the law makes us a spiritual beggar. Improper submission looks simply at the law and says, by these commands, by obedience to these commands, will I find my righteousness. This was the Galatians problem. They said, if I get circumcised and follow the law, I'll be righteous in God's sight. No, you won't. The law makes no one righteous. It just exposes sin. Secondly, improper submission means you look at the law and you're so overwhelmed, you say, I just can't do it. But you linger outside the promised land and don't come to Christ. You're overwhelmed. You read Matthew 5:48. You say, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're saying, that's what it takes to get to heaven? Forget it. There is no way I can be perfect. No one's perfect. I'm not going to worry about it. So you stay outside. Rather, you should come to Christ. You should come to Him and believe in Him and allow His blood, to, His sacrifice to cleanse you from all sin. Proper submission to the law is a beautiful thing. It involves simply recognizing that God never gives a command lightly. Every single command of God, He expects to be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Let the law make you a spiritual beggar. Read through Matthew 5 and be crushed by it and go back to Matthew 5, 3. Read through Jesus' statements, not on murder, but on anger, not on adultery, but on lust, about marriage, about the promises you make, about loving your enemy, and let it come back and make you a spiritual beggar. 
And if you don't know Jesus Christ, tremble today. Tremble because the whole law stands and accuses you, and it will on Judgment Day, unless you come to faith in Christ and have His blood remove all that condemnation which has been stored up against you for the day of wrath. Instead, come to Christ even today. Don't leave these walls without having that written code which stands against you removed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, come again to the law and say, God, this is how you want me to live. Everyone who hears these commands of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Everyone who obeys the law and teaches others to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus. Proper submission to the law. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.